The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We appreciate you being here this morning, those watching online. Thanks for joining us. We're, we're glad you're here. Now, we've been studying 1 John. We've been in chapter 3 and just finished up the section there that ends actually with verse 10a. But in 1 John 3, 8, we saw we've been dealing with the devil, his sin, his destruction. And we've talked a lot in those, in the, I guess the last three weeks, about the divine counsel. So what I want to do this morning is go into a little more depth on the divine counsel and look at Psalm 82. Uh, I know that some of you are new to this concept, so I figure this, hopefully Psalm 82 will pull a lot of this together and give you an understanding of what we're talking about. And this is just, this is just a great psalm to do it. Psalm 82, verse 1, says, a psalm of Asaph. God takes His stand in His own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. Now, the predominant view of this psalm is that it's talking about Yahweh judging Israel's leaders. Alright, that's how most people take it. And let me tell you right now, that view is way off. Okay, I'm going to prove that to you. Alright, that view is way off. And I'm going to prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. Okay? But the first thing I want you to understand here is that I believe that this faulty view, that this psalm is talking about Israel's leaders, comes from bad translations. All right, such as you see on the screen, the New American Standard. This is a bad translation. They obscure the meaning of this verse. All right, gods here and rulers are the same Hebrew word, Elohim. So why translate one as God and one as rulers? Well, because they have a predetermined bias. And so they say, well, that can't mean God. must mean ruler. So they do that. Let's look at Young's literal... Now, I've always encouraged you, use many translations. You know, it helps you get a better picture of things. Look at how Young does this. The Psalm of Asaph, God has stood in the company of God, in the midst of God doth judge. So the first thing you notice is Young has God three times in it. The New American has it once. Why the difference? Well, in the Hebrew, Elohim is in this verse twice. And Young adds the additional God in the company of God which is the Hebrew word Adah. And it means a stated assembly, um, a family, a concourse. Now the ESV translates it this way, the top one. God has taken His place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, He holds judgment. Here the translators render Adah as divine council, and Young's translates it, Company of God, on the very bottom there. Now, the term Adah is normally translated as congregation. So, Elohim has taken His place in the congregation of the Elohim. Now, the term divine counsel is used by Hebrew scholars to refer to the heavenly host. Now, this is what some people don't understand. Um, the neighboring regions around Israel, for example, Ugarit, they all these different cultures had a pantheon of gods. And you're familiar with the Roman version, you know, the Titans and everybody. You know, all the gods are fighting each other and they're trying to take control. And one god wants to be the dominant one and they're killing each other and stuff like that. Well, Israel had a pantheon also, but it was very different from its neighbors. Okay? 
In this pantheon, gods are not fighting amidst one another. They're all kind of against Yahweh, the bad ones, but they're not doing too good because Yahweh is supreme. All right? No one's going to knock him out of his position. And so we see in the ancient Near East that these different people had pantheons of divine beings who administered the affairs of the cosmos. Now, the New American Standard says he judges in the midst of the rulers. The ESV says, in the midst of the gods he holds judgment. Like I said, I really can't understand why New American Standard translates Elohim here as rulers. They translate the first part as God, and they get down and they say, oh, let's translate it rulers because it can't mean God's there. You know, the writers could have used a different word if they didn't want it to mean gods. Now, let me just say a word here about the ESV. In my opinion... It's one of the best translations, I think, available at this time. And here's why I think that. The starting point for the ESV translation was the 1971 edition of the Revised Standard Version. Each word of the text was also checked against and based on the Masoretic text of the Hebrew Bible. The publisher, who's Crossway, states that in exceptionally difficult cases, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint, the Samaritan Pentateuch, the Syriac Peshitta, and the Latin Vulgate and other sources were consulted to shed possible light on the text or, if necessary, to support a divergence from the Masoretic text. So they are using all the resources available at this time. And people, we, in the 19th century, especially later on, we came into so much, or the 20th century, we came into so much more evidence because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, because of discoveries at Ugarit, that it just helped us open up scriptures and learn things people couldn't have known before that. All right? The ESV is what would be called a formal equivalence translation, a word-for-word -word translation, which attempts to translate the Bible as literally as possible, keeping the sentence structure and the idioms as intact as possible. All right. So, verse 1 of Psalm 82 tells us that Elohim has taken his place in the divine council. The divine council is made up of Yahweh, and many other gods, these divine beings. Now, who are these gods, and where did they come from? Well, we talked a little bit about that in the last couple of weeks, but Yahweh existed from all eternity. You all get that, right? Think about this. Think about, go, go back to your beginning, your youngest memories. You remember being a little person, you know, and, okay. Well, think, there is no beginning for Yahweh. I don't care how far back you go. He still go 10 million years. He's, still, he's there. 10 billion years. He's there. He always existed. Don't think about that too long because you'll hurt yourself, okay? And by Yahweh, I mean the Divine Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then at some point in time, not sure when, Yahweh created other gods, other divine beings. They're lesser gods to be part of His family. He's not created. He always existed, but He created these lesser beings to be part of the family, part of the divine council. And Christ, who is Yahweh incarnate, is said to have created everything including these gods. We see this in Colossians 1.16. For by Him all things were created, that's Christ, in heaven and on earth. So you got things created in heaven, things created in earth. we got visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. So He creates everything, the things on earth, Kingdoms and empires, the things invisible, the divine principalities, divine powers. Now these words, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, I don't think refer to human government here. 
In part, this refers to the hierarchy of spiritual beings. These gods were created before Yahweh created the world. So sometime, we don't know when, in eternity past, He created this council and He had this council. All right. Then at a point in time, He created the world. We see that in Job 38, 4-7. God is talking to Job here and He says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. You know, God's using sarcasm there. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now here, morning stars, sons of God, are names of these divine beings. They're members of the divine council. So when the world is created, they're there. Now a lot of people want to make sons of God as men. So how do you have men at creation of the world rejoicing? You don't, but you have sons of God. The morning stars, the sons of God, they're shouting for joy. They're rejoicing over what God has done. And I want you to understand very clearly that this council is meeting in the heavens according to Psalm 89. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Yahweh, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. And where is it? For who in the skies... Now here we see an assembly of holy ones that's meeting in the skies. Skies is the Hebrew word shahak, and it means clouds or heaven. So this council is meeting in the heavens, not on earth. They're not Jewish judges, as some people say, because they're in the heavens meeting. This is not an earthly human council. He says, who among the heavenly beings is like you, Yahweh? And heavenly beings here is ben el which is sons of God. Then we have God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around Him. Now notice what it says here. It says that Yahweh and Elohim greatly to be feared in the council. So this council looks to Him, fears Him, awesome above those who are around Him. So the God, these gods in the council... There's no doubt who's leading this, who's in charge. They worship Him. Alright? So this Psalms, they depict a, a heavenly council in the skies, not as some scholars suggest, a council of human judges. This is speaking of the divine council made up of Yahweh and the sons of God, or the watchers, as Daniel calls them. That's my favorite term for them. I like it. Watchers. And Daniel uses that. Speaking of the judgment on Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel says this, The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones. To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will and sets over it the lowest of men. The word watchers here is from the Hebrew word er, which means a watcher, a divine guardian. Now, the non-canonical book of 1st Enoch has much to say about these watchers. In fact, the first 36 chapters of the book of Enoch is called the Book of the Watchers. Okay? So it's all about these guys, all right? The scripture, in scripture, this word is only used by Daniel, and Daniel uses it three times. He uses it also in Daniel 4.13. I saw in the vision of my head as I lay on my bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. So every time Daniel uses the term watchers, he tells us that they're holy ones. And here he says they're from heaven. 
All right, these watchers come from heaven. Let me ask you something. How many times have you read these verses in Daniel and stopped and said, who are these watchers and why are they making decisions and what, what are they doing? Yeah, I know. It's like we miss stuff. You know, we just get programmed to read over things we don't understand. We just keep on going. All right. Well, these watchers, they're part of Yahweh's divine counsel. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, we see a ruling body consisting of Yahweh as the supreme monarch and various supernatural attendants. Let's look at the divine counsel in action. This is an awesome text in Kings because you're getting, we're going into the throne room. And Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne. So Micaiah is in the throne room of God. And this is one thing about the biblical prophets. These prophets entered into the throne room of God to get advice, to get words from God. And all the hosts of heaven standing beside him. So here's Yahweh on the throne. you got all these hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. So again, this is a throne room scene with the divine council. He's in the throne room, Micaiah. He's seeing the interaction with Yahweh and the gods. And here we see the mention of the hosts of heaven, which is Shavah Hashimeim, which stands before Yahweh. They're in heaven. They're the hosts in heaven. And they stand before Yahweh. That's a reference to the divine beings. Now, these hosts of heaven are not just stars in the night sky, as some people want to make them out to be. Look at Nehemiah 9.6. You are Yahweh. All right, let's stop for a minute right there, okay? You are Yahweh. You see that Lord here is in all caps. We've gone over this before, but when you see it in all caps, the Hebrew like that, it's from the yod Vavhe vav in the Hebrew. All right, this is the Tetragrammaton. This is the sacred covenant name of God. Now, this name includes the verb Hava, meaning to exist, and the letter Yod as a prefix, meaning He. So, Yahweh means He exists. Now, if it's a causative verb, it means He causes to exist. So, either one, both are true. He is the self-existent one who causes to exist. All right, let's go on. You are Yahweh. You alone. There is no other Yahweh. You have made heaven and the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that's on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. See, we got these... Living creatures, and people, only living creatures can worship me. The stars are not worshiping God. Okay, the literal stars, the moon, the sun, they're not worshiping God. These are divine beings. They're worshiping God. They're created divine beings. They reside in the heavens. Look at Psalm 29, 1 and 2, a Psalm of David. Ascribe to Yahweh, O heavenly beings. So he's calling on the heavenly beings to ascribe to Yahweh. Ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory due His name. Worship Yahweh in the splendor of holiness. So here we have heavenly beings, and again, it's Ben-El, sons of God. They're called upon to worship Yahweh. And Psalm 97 tells us that Yahweh is exalted above all these gods. For you, O Yahweh, are most high over all the earth, you are exalted far above all gods. Now, let me ask you something, people. If there are no other gods, which many people will say, there's no other gods, 
then saying Yahweh is far above all gods is like saying Yahweh is far above things that don't exist. That's pretty high up, isn't it? It's far above nothing. That doesn't make any sense. He's exalted above these gods. Look at Psalm 135, 5 and 6. For I know that Yahweh is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever Yahweh pleases, He does. I love that. You know why He can do that? Because He's God. He's the supreme God. He's over all gods. And He does whatever He wants. In heaven and on earth. In seas and all the... In other words, God just does whatever... Wouldn't that be wonderful? Just do whatever you want. Okay? Because He's above all. He's the supreme ruler. He's over all the Elohim. Now we see a demonstration of this verse in Exodus 12.12. Yahweh says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. Every one of those plagues was against one of the Egyptian gods. And Yahweh is saying, you want to worship them? Let me show you who's really in control. And he just defeats them all. He says, I am Yahweh. Now, in recounting the Exodus, Numbers says this, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom Yahweh had struck down among them, on their gods also Yahweh executed judgment. So here, it wasn't just against the Egyptians. He says, he says also, he was executing judgment on their gods. He destroyed Egypt. By the time the Israelites left there, that place was... It was a decreation thing. They're, they're done. All right, back to our divine counsel scene in Kings. Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on the throne, all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right, on his left. And Yahweh said, he's talking to the host now, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? So God says, Hey, I'd like to kill Ahab. How do we want to do this? And one said one thing, another said another thing. In other words, there's a discussion going on in the hosts of heaven. They're talking about, hey, how about we do this? How about we do this? Then a spirit came forward and stood before Yahweh saying, I'll entice him. And Yahweh said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do it. So he says, you know, this, this divine being, this watcher says, look, I'll go down to his prophets and I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets and I'll tell all those prophets to tell him, you're going to win the battle, go get them, you know, you're going to win. You know, they put horns on, they're saying, you're going to be like this, you're going to plow them all, and you're, you'll wipe them all out. Good plan. Good plan. All the inhabitants, look at Daniel says, he says, all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, why have you, what have you done? In other words, God's, he's in control. Let me back up a minute. This is what I wanted you to see here. He's, you know, these, these divine hosts are coming to Yahweh. I'll do this. And Yahweh says, okay, that plan will work. You go do it. He's in control. And that's what we see here. He's in control. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven. His will's being accomplished. All right? Now, as I said earlier, the New American Standard, he judges in the midst of the rulers, is a bad translation. But the majority view on this psalm says it's talking about human judges. 
John Calvin in his commentary on Psalm 82 says this, the name gods here is to be understood of human judges. Now not to be too hard on Calvin because he didn't have available the information we have today. He didn't have it. Okay? (laughs) Now, Pastor Paul Laboutier of Calvary Chapel, Ontario, Oregon, teaching on Psalm 82, says this. Now, I I don't know this guy from Adam, but I was just looking at some different opinions on what people say on this psalm, so I found a video of his, and I was watching it, and I thought, this is really interesting. He says this, this is a psalm written to judges, people who judge. So he goes into the whole thing. He's talking about earthly judges, and God's warning those who judge, you know, to be good and don't mess up and all this stuff. And here's what's interesting. He uses for his text the ESV. And says that the word for gods is Elohim. He's right. But that Elohim can be translated a myriad of ways, and it can. We'll look at that in a minute. And then he says this. Because this word can be translated as judge or judges, and that's wrong. It cannot be translated that way. Verse 1 could read this way. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the judges, he holds judgment. We know that there are no other gods... There's only one God, so he's referring to those who judge. So he he can't be talking about gods because there aren't gods. Now, we already established that. Hopefully you saw that. So here's what's interesting to me. He starts with a correct translation, and then he changes it. So Elohim means judges. So he goes back to what the NASB says. And listen, Elohim never means judges. It's something it never means in Scripture. Now, this is is really important, so we've got to spend a minute here. I want to talk about Elohim. Because if you understand the word Elohim and what it means and how it's used, you can't get this psalm wrong. But if you don't, you're going to mess it up. All right? It's critical to understanding this, understanding Elohim. Elohim is used in the New American Standard 2,606 times. Elohim is the plural word of El, which comes from a root meaning might, strength, or power. Elohim is plural, but it's what grammarians call a morphological plural. Y'all know what that is, right? Y'all went to English class, right? All right, Hebrew nouns that end in I am are plural, but in most cases throughout the Tanakh, the meaning is singular. We know this from Hebrew grammar. Elohim is like our English word deer or sheep. How do you know if deer is singular or plural? By the grammar of the sentence, right? That's basically all you can tell. In the first use of Elohim in Genesis, Genesis 1.1 says, Bereshit bara Elohim. All right? The verb bara identifies the subject of the verb as masculine singular. So it's Elohim, but it's, re- it's in the singular. Now you may think of Elohim as another name of Yahweh. In other words, he's called Yahweh, he's called Elohim. That's not right, okay? Elohim is used in Scripture for many others besides Yahweh. It is used of Yahweh. Yahweh is called Elohim 2,000 times. As in Genesis 1.1. But we know that Yahweh is called Elohim, but He's not the only Elohim. As we saw in Psalm 82, members of the Divine Council are called Elohim. Elohim is used of gods of foreign nations. For example, we see that in 1 Kings. Because they have forsaken me and worship Astaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, Milcom, the god of the Amorites. Now, 
God is here and God and God. These are all Elohim. So these are foreign Elohims. We'll talk about them more in a minute. Elohim is used of demons in Deuteronomy 32.17. They sacrificed to demons that were no Elohim. To Elohim they had never known. To new Elohim they had, that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. Alright, here God and God's Elohim. So the demons are called Elohim. And here's one that surprises most people. It, the, witch, the story of the witch of Endor. In 1 Samuel 28.13, the king said to her, he's talking to the witch, don't be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said, I see, the woman said to Saul, I see God coming up out of the earth. So she says, I see Elohim. So here's the thing you have to understand. All uses of Elohim in the Tanakh refer to spiritual beings. Well, how is Samuel a spiritual being? He did. He's in the spirit realm now. He's no longer walking among the living. He is now a spirit being. And the Hebrew scholar Michael Heiser says this. He says, Elohim is a place of residence locator. Meaning, Elohim is only used of those in the spirit world. So if you see Elohim, you know they live in the spirit world. Daniel 2, in Daniel 2, the Chaldeans say this. The thing that the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So the gods, they say, dwell in a different realm. They're not dwelling with us. And that's what Elohim is. Elohim is a place of residence locator. It's telling you they live in the spirit realm. So hopefully you can see that Elohim does have a broad range of uses and it's not strictly used referring to Yahweh. Now, in attempting to find a human use of Elohim, and let me challenge you to do this, those watching, those here, if you can find a use of Elohim that is human, I'd like to see it. Okay? And this is important because, like I said, if you can't, and you can't, okay, then this psalm can't be misinterpreted. Alright? There's no human uses. But people try. I've had people come to me, oh, God uses Elohim of Moses. I'm like, Really? Where is that? And they show me this verse, Exodus 4.16. He shall speak for you to the people. He's talking to Moses. And he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. So they say, see, Moses is called Elohim. Is he? Is he called Elohim here? It says he'll be as Elohim. He's talking of something very specific. Look at... Uh, Deuteronomy 18.18 I will raise up for them a prophet like you. God's talking to Moses. From among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. Okay, this people is the definition of a prophet. A prophet is the mouth of God. He is someone who speaks for God. And that's, what, that's exactly what Moses is going to be doing. Okay, he is going to be speaking. He's going to be as God because... His prophet is going to be Aaron. Look at uh, Exodus 7.1. And Yahweh said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. So Aaron was to speak for Moses, who was as God to Pharaoh. Aaron was Moses' mouth. He spoke for Moses. So a prophet is someone who speaks for God. So Aaron was like a prophet, and Moses was like a god. If Moses 
is an Elohim, if that's what this verse is saying, then Aaron is a mouth. Okay? And that's, okay, he's like an Elohim. He's playing the role of the Elohim in this position. Another verse that's used to question that Elohim is used only to refer to the spirit world, some interesting verses in Exodus 22, 7 and 8. And again, I'm using the New American here because it screws it up. <laughs> and I want you to see it wrong so you can see it right, okay? Because if you read in this, you, you get so off base. He says, if a man gives his neighbor money or goods to keep for him, and it's stolen from his house. So you get the picture? Someone comes, here, hold this money for me. And you go back and say, oh, guess what? Your money was stolen. Okay, if the thief is caught, he shall pay double. If the thief is not caught, then the owner of the house shall appear before the judges to determine whether he laid his hands on his neighbor's property. Okay, here the word judges is Elohim. And that's why they want to make Elohim be a judge. Because they say, okay, take the owner of the house and they bring him before the judges. Let me ask you something. How are human judges to determine if that man stole the money? They don't have lie detector tests back then. Okay, how are they going to find out? The English Standard Version translates it as God and not judges. And there is no justification for translating Elohim as judges, none. Let's look at Deuter or Exodus 22.9. For every breach of trust, whether it is for ox or for donkey, for sheep for clothing, or for any lost thing about which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before the judges. He whom the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. Judges here both times is Elohim. And some people say, want to say, okay, see, it's judges. Again, bad translation. The Faith Life Study Bible says this. The idea of God condemning the guilty party recalls other contexts where God's will was determined through casting lots. Though the method of discerning God's will is not outlined here, God often makes his will known during a decision-making process. Since the scenario here is very similar to the one that follows, God's will may have been determined by an oath taken in the name of Yahweh or the presumption that God would reveal and condemn the one who took his name in vain. Again, the ESV translates Elohim here as God and not judges. All right, the ESV on the bottom says, translates it God. In both cases, you take the parties and come before God, and the one whom God condemns will pay double. That makes a lot more sense than judges doing this stuff, right? Now, I think this clears it up even more if you go to 22, 10 through 11. If a man gives his neighbor a donkey, or an ox, or a sheep, and any beast to keep safe, and it dies, or is injured, or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by Yahweh shall be between both of them. So they're going before Yahweh, not some human judges to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept by the oath, and he shall make restitution. So they're going to go before Yahweh. They're going to take an oath before him. So Elohim is not used of human unless they are dead and in the spirit world. Here, judges us clearly before God, because they go before God. And God determines, they determine God's will by casting lots or some other way, but they determine... Who God says the, the judges are not doing this. Okay? Again, keep in mind, Elohim is a place of residence locator. tells you what realm they're located in. All Elohim live in the spirit world. There is never a time, 
and this is very important, people, there is never a time in Scripture where a man is called Elohim unless he's dead. This is very important because it makes it clear that Psalm 82 is talking about gods. It's not talking about human judges. All right? We also have an example in early Judaism where people are using Psalm 82 to talk about the judgment of gods, not people, not judges. When they, when they found Qumran, and you know the story of Qumran, some guy was looking for a goat, and he threw a rock into a cave, thought, hey, the goat went in there, let me throw a rock in there, hope it will scare him, the goat will come out. He threw the rock in, and he heard a shattering. He's like, what is that? So he went in, and he found all these clay jars you know, filled with scrolls. So he went back the next day, and they started to find, well, then they realized we got a uh, just a mess of scrolls here at Qumran, and they started going in and getting them, and they started deciphering them, and that's helped us greatly understand Scripture from some of the things we found there. Well, one of the texts is called 11Q Melchizedek, and it uses Psalm 82 to talk about the judgment of gods, not judges. All right, 11Q Melchizedek says this, It is the time of the year of Melchizedek, and Melchizedek is here, used here for Christ, and of his armies. The nation of the holy ones of God, the rule of judgment, as it is written about him in the song of David, and then he quotes Psalm 82, God will stand in the assembly of the gods in the midst of the gods he judges. All right, so this is from a, a Jewish text showing us how they understood it. And they understood it as God. Christ is the judge. Now, 11Q Melchizedek, the text goes on immediately in the next line, and it says, to his aid shall come all the gods of justice. And so there's these good gods coming to the aid of Melchizedek in the destruction of Belial. All right, let's go back now to Psalm 82 and continue on. We know he's talking about divine beings, gods. And then he asks them this in verse 2 to 5. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Justice is not being met out. So these gods are being judged because they're ruling the people unjustly. Let's look at Psalm 58. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of men uprightly? No. In your heart you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on the earth. Again, the New American Standard is not a good translation here. Just like Psalm 82, the gods are being judged for ruling wickedly. Okay, now let's stop here and ask a question. How did these gods end up ruling over the people? I thought God ruled over everybody. Do you know the answer to that question? You should. Okay. Let me give you my view, okay? This is the Curtis translation, understanding. So take it for a grain of, with a grain of salt there, all right? I think these watchers, these lesser gods that God had created. Now listen, we don't know how long ago God created these, but here's God, the Trinity, and the Divine Council, and they're just fellowshipping together. In the Garden of Eden, that's God's dwelling place. They're dwelling in the Garden of Eden, they're having a good time. Well, God decides to make man. He makes man, and then He brings man into the Garden. And these watchers are like, who is this and why is he in our garden? They didn't like it. And I think the pseudepigraphal works make it clear that they were jealous of Adam. They didn't like him in there. 
we got to get rid of them. So they go to Eve and they say, hey, did God really say? Nah, he's just kidding. That won't really happen. And so they get Adam and Eve to disobey God so God will kick him out of the garden. Problem solved. We got rid of that man. All right? God got rid of him. Well, Yahweh doesn't want, he wants fellowship with man. So Yahweh comes up with a plan from eternity past, from the very beginning. It wasn't like Adam did this, so God said, now what do I do? I'm a super lapsarian. The very beginning, God laid it all out, then he worked the plan. Okay? So this is part of the plan. Adam fell, he knew he would fall. Christ was slain from the foundation of the earth. Well, then Yahweh told his plan, Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelum. He's going to send a woman, a seed of the woman's going to come and is going to fix this thing. Okay? Well, the watchers hear this, and so they're like, well, what do you do now? They're going to send, you know, a redeemer's going to come, it's going to fix this. I know what we'll do. Let's corrupt the human race. Let's corrupt it so when, you know, they can't come through the human race. So the sons of God leave heaven. They come down. They marry women. These are gods. They marry human women. They have offspring that are half human, half divine. They're hybrids, okay? They're Nephilim. They're giants. And people, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but the pseudepigrapher does. This is where demons come from. Demons, when the Nephilim die, they're half human, half God. The God part doesn't die. So when the human part dies, the demon, the God part, is a demon and lives on. All right? So, because we had this rebellion in Genesis 3 and then Genesis 6, it's just, you know, it's, the earth is corrupt. And man then begins to worship these gods that God had created instead of Yahweh. And this rebellion of man culminates in the building of a ziggurat at Babel, Genesis 11. So Yahweh dispersed them from over the face of the whole earth. They left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there Yahweh confused the language of all the earth. And from there, Yahweh dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Here we are in Genesis 11. Everyone's speaking the same language. They're all on the same page. Things are in a state of chaos because there's rebellion against Yahweh. And so God needs to judge them. Now, what was the reason for them building this ziggurat? What was the purpose of this? There's all kinds of answers to that. But I think one of the reasons is men of the time, they feared another flood. So they said, let's erect this thing whose top reaches heaven. We'll be safe. We know we're making God mad because we're not worshiping Him. But when He goes to judge again, <laughs> He brings another flood. We'll just laugh because we'll be safe in the ziggurat. God's like, you guys are done, man. So He divides up the language. All of a sudden, they're all speak. They can't even understand one another. And He disperses them over the, the earth. All right? Very significant text. We learn about this in Deuteronomy 32. This is talking about what happened there. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance. Now the nations are all these people. They're goyim. He gives them the inheritance. He spread them out. That's what you get. When he divided mankind, we just read that. He divided them up, Tower of Babel. He fixed the borders of the peoples. They all had their own geographical region. He fixed it according to the number of the sons of God. Now, some translations say sons of Israel. It's just a bad translation. And we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls from Qumran, we know from the Septuagint that this is not a good translation. All right? It is sons of God. B'nai Elohim. It can't be sons of Israel here. Why? As far as Genesis 11, there's no Israel yet, people. Israel doesn't exist. Okay? They don't come to chapter 12. And why do they come in chapter 
12. Because God's done with all these other people, right? All right, so again, sons of God is the right translation here. And that, like I said, if you look into that, I don't have time to go into that right now because it's a, it's a good argument, but it's kind of in-depth. But the Septuagint translated this as uh, Anglon Theo, angels of God. All right, because they understood he's talking about divine beings, not talking about humans here. Now, in Genesis 10, which is the table of nations, Yahweh divides Noah's descendants into 70 different nations. And this is recorded in Genesis 10.32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So, Genesis chapter 10 is the backdrop for Moses' statement in Deuteronomy 32.8, that Yahweh is responsible for the creation and the placement of the nations, the goyim. In fact, variations of the same Hebrew root word parad, which means to separate, are used both in Genesis 10.32 and Deuteronomy 32.8. Now the idea that the separation of mankind into 70 nations at the Tower of Babel was by and for the angelic sons of God is supported by the ancient book of Jasser. Now, Jasser's mentioned in Joshua 10.13. It says, is it not written in the book of Jasser? Uh, 2 Samuel 1.18 says, is written in the book of Jasser. And Jasser says this, 9.31. And they built a tower in the city, and they did this thing daily until many days and years were elapsed. And God said to the 70 angels, now there's, if you go look at Genesis 10, there's 70 different nations there that God divides up. And here we have 70 gods who stood foremost before him to those who were near to him, saying, Come, let us descend and confuse their tongues, that one shall not understand the language of his neighbor. And they did so unto them. Now, if Deuteronomy 32, if in Deuteronomy 32, Moses was indeed referencing Yahweh's separation of the nations according to Noah's offspring, specifically their physical separation of the Tower of Babel, it's important to note that Israel's not listed in the 70 nations found in Genesis 10. And the reason it's not listed is because it doesn't exist. Therefore, the statement that God set the boundaries of the nations according to the children of Israel, it doesn't fit contextually. It doesn't, it's just not right. Okay, He's not doing it. Israel's not on the scene yet. So what happens at Babel is man's disobedience has reached its height and Yahweh's done with them. He's just to the point, I'm done. You just, you know, he brought the flood to wipe out the Nephilim, but they just keep going. They just will not worship him. So he says, I'm done. And he gets rid of, I'm done. You're not, I'm not your God anymore. I'm done with you. And he hands them over to these other gods to rule over. They were to worship these lesser gods because Yahweh, he was done with them. Man continued to reject Yahweh and wanted to serve other gods, so he gives them up. I think this is what Paul's talking about in Romans 1. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. God's done with them. I've given you up because of your depravity. This could be Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel. Giving up the nations to the 70 watchers. Now, what happens after God gives up the people? And turns them over to the lesser gods. So now he's got nothing, right? I got no people. I just got rid of all my people. So in the very next chapter, God says, I'm going to get me a new people. And he creates a new people from Abram. Genesis 12, 1 and 2. 
Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you. And I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you, make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Now, I want you to notice here, I'm going to make your name great. I'll make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. He's going to be a blessing. God, from the very moment God disperses the nations, He has a plan to call them back. All right? So He calls Abram. Now, many people have said, I've said in the past, Abram was a pagan moon worshiper when God called him. I don't think that's true. I think Abraham knew God. I've read a lot of the stuff that the rabbis have written and different pseudepigraphists talk about this, about Abraham worshiping God from the time he was three. His father Terah was an idol maker. He, he was an idolater, but he also made idols. And there's some really cool stories you know, that the rabbis tell about Abraham dealing with his father and the idols. One of the stories is he took a stick and he went around and he smashed every idol in the shop except the biggest one, and he took the stick and he put it next to the biggest one, his dad came in and said, what happened? He goes, that big idol smashed all these little ones. And his dad goes, that's ridiculous. He's made of stone, he can't move, he can't do anything. And Abraham said, exactly, exactly. You get the point, okay? They can't do anything, they're nothing. You know, so anyways, God calls Abraham, and I think he had a relationship with God. All right, so God calls him, I'm going to make a nation of you, you're going to be my family, and I'm going to make a great nation because these other nations don't want anything to do with me. Now, commenting on Deuteronomy 32, 8, and 9, John Walton writes this. These verses are intended to contrast the fact that the Lord has set Israel apart to Himself from among all the nations. Israel's not numbered with them. The nations have their own gods who are mortal, but they do not have Yahweh, who alone does not die, is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. The point of Deuteronomy 32, 8, and 9 is that sometime after God separated the people on the earth at Babel and established where on earth they're going to be located, He assigned gods to be over them. Now, it talks about the 70, and I think 70 is probably a representative number, and I think it's not like, oh, you got this nation has one God and this nation has one God. They have one ruling God, and they have a bunch of other gods probably. There's probably a bunch of gods over each nation. Now, according to Deuteronomy 4.19, this giving up of the nations was a punitive act. 4.19 says this, and beware, he's talking to Israel here, beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, moon, and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down and serve them, things that Yahweh your God has allotted to the peoples under the whole heaven. He's saying to Israel, you don't worship them, why? They're not your gods. They're allotted to the nations. And we saw earlier in the study that the hosts of heaven refer to sentient created beings, beings which reside in the heavens. And notice here that these hosts of heaven have been allotted to the peoples. The word allotted is the Hebrew halak, and it literally means apportioned or assigned. So here we're told that Yahweh has assigned the hosts of heaven to the peoples of earth, meaning non-Israelites. Israel, he keeps telling them, don't worship them. They're not your. I'm your God. Those gods don't belong to you. Now, speaking of judgment that was to come upon the disobedient people of Israel, Moses said this: All the nations will say, "Why has Yahweh done this to the land? What caused the heat of His great anger?" Then people will say, "It is because they abandoned the covenant of Yahweh, the God of their fathers, which He made with them when He brought them out of the land of Egypt." and went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known 
whom he had not allotted to them. In other words, they, they weren't their gods. Therefore, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. So these gods that Israel worshipped were not allotted to them. They were allotted to the nations. Well, these gods didn't rule in truth and justice, so Yahweh is judging them, and He's reclaiming the nations for Himself. Let's go back to Psalm 82. He says to these gods, I said, you are gods, Elohim, sons of the Most High, all of you. Now watch the next verse. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. If these Elohim were men, why would Yahweh say you'll die like men? How else do men die but like men? Yahweh is saying here that He's going to judge these disobedient gods. Literally, He's going to take away their immortality. Jeremiah says something similar in Jeremiah 10.11. Thus shall you say to them, now watch this, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. These gods are going to perish because they're disobeying God. So we see in Psalm 82 that Yahweh reviewed their performance as gods and judges of the Gentiles, and He condemned them for failing to judge justly. They're supposed to copy the rule of the Father of all. They're supposed to rule in justice and law and keep order. Notice the last verse of the song. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Who is the God here that's to arise? Who is to judge these disobedient gods on the earth? Well, the Septuagint word for arise here is anistomy in the Greek, and this term is used in the New Testament every time for the resurrection. He is saying, arise, resurrect, O God, so we know it's talking about Christ. Peter uses the word anistomy in Acts 2.32. This Yeshua, God raised up. And of that, we're all witnesses. Alright, so... This is talking about Christ. Arise, O God, judge the earth. Now, this is a reference to Yeshua, the resurrected one. He is the God who arises. He is the God who judges the earth. Now, when does this judgment of the gods take place? It tells you right there in the song. It takes place at the resurrection. Okay. Arise and judge. So Paul also connects the resurrection and the ascension of Christ this way to judgment. He said that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, okay, at the resurrection, and he seated him in his right hand in heavenly places. That's the ascension. Now he's far above all rule, authority, and power, and dominion. He's far above all these gods, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things under his feet, and he gave him to be head over all things in the church. Christ He's putting all things under His feet. He is ruling. He is reigning. This is Christ's dominion. His managerial rule of all things. Peter also speaks of the preeminence of Yeshua over all heavenly beings when he says, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to Him. So Yeshua arose from the grave. He ascended into heaven and He judged these gods. And verse 8 tells us that when He judges these gods, He inherits all nations. The nations that God had given to these gods, He's taken back. And Paul also connects the resurrection of Christ and the reclaiming of the nations in Romans 15, 12. 
And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse, that's Yeshua, will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. He's going to rise, resurrect from the dead. He's going to rule the Gentiles and then watch in him will the Gentiles hope. So the nations that Yahweh had given over to the gods are now being reclaimed by Yeshua starting at Pentecost. All right, here's what we have to understand, people. Pentecost is the undoing of the scattering of the nations at Babel. At Babel, they're scattered. At Pentecost, they're gathered. Yeshua is victorious over all the gods through His resurrection, through His ascension. He's seated at the right hand of God. He is ruling. Now, I'm sure if you're a thinking individual, which you are, that's why you're here, right? You've got to be wondering, well, if the gods were judged by Yeshua in His resurrection and ascension, then why does Paul tell the Ephesians 30 years after the resurrection and ascension that they're in a spiritual battle. Look at Ephesians 6.12. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in heavenly places. Oh, so many people want to say, oh, this is talking about men. We just fight with men. It says we don't battle against flesh and blood. But here's the thing. All right, here's the get-overable part of this verse. See the words cosmic powers there? That's from the Greek kosmokarator, which according to Strong's concordance means a world ruler, an epithet of Satan. That's Strong saying that. Thayer says it means Lord of the world, Prince of the age, the devil and his demons. This is its only use in the New Testament, kosmokarator. But it is used in the Testament of Solomon of spiritual beings. It's used in the dictionary of deities and demons in the Bible to mean Lord of the world, world ruler. And it occurs in pagan literature as an epithet for the gods, the rulers, the heavenly bodies. So Paul tells the Ephesian believers around 60 AD that they're in a spiritual battle with divine beings. So why, if the gods were judged by Yeshua in His resurrection and ascension, are they still in a spiritual battle 30 years later? Okay. Did you say the already not yet? Yes. It is the, we're in the transition period, people. The 40-year transition period. The victory of Christ over the gods was won at Calvary. But it was not consummated until the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. So we have the transition period when the church is growing and the Old Covenant's diminishing and there's a battle still going on with these spiritual forces, but there's a battle has gotten heated now because their, their time is running out. Notice what Matthew writes in Matthew 24-29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, after all we talked about today, the powers of the heavens here are divine beings, people. Alright? The stars are divine beings. The powers of heaven. They're the same spiritual cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil that Paul speaks about in Ephesians 6.12. Now we know that this text in Matthew 24, because we've been periodically looking at Matthew 24, this text deals with the fall of Jerusalem. It deals with the end of the age in AD 70. It deals with the second coming. So when the Lord returned in the second coming, these cosmic forces were all defeated. So what began at Pentecost was completed in the Holocaust of A.D. 70 on Jerusalem. He says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, you shall inherit the nations. 
People, this is Babel reversed. The nations have been gathered and they are now ruled by Yahweh. And the cosmic battle is over. These demons, as we looked at this in John, Satan and his emissaries have been destroyed. We're not fighting that battle. That battle is over. Yahweh rules and He reigns. We don't have to worry about demons. We don't have to worry about Satan. It's not Him giving us all this hard time. No, it's our own corrupt self. You know, James says You're, every man is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. He doesn't say anything about Satan there. You're drawn away by your own lust. So the battle's over, and guess who won? And it's not that we're waiting for victory, people. We have it right now. Christ is victorious at this moment over the gods. The battle's over. He rules and He reigns. Let's pray. Father, I thank You this morning, Lord, for Your grace to us. I thank You, Lord, that the battle is over. That You have, are reigning. You are ruling eternally. You are a King. And we are secure in You, Lord. Thank You for Your grace to us, Father. I pray You'd give us the heart of Bereans, Lord, that we would truly... Let this text speak for itself. Father, I pray that people who are questioning the meaning of this psalm would just do a deep dive on the word Elohim and find its usage. Lord, thank You for Your grace to us. I thank You for all we have in this day and age with study aids and opportunities to know Your Scripture better. Give us the heart to use them, Lord. To study, to be proved unto You. Thank You, Lord, for Your grace to us. Amen.